This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Hi, it's Vanessa from the Fighting Stigma Show on Free FM. Are you a Waikato local? Do you have an idea for a radio show? Do you want to try your hand at being a content creator on Free FM? If so, check out our website on freefm.org.nz or find Free FM on Facebook and get in touch. Roy Sinclair and his partner, Haruko, whose homelands Japan, go cycling in the British Isles 14 years ago on holiday in Cornwall's well-known Penwith Peninsula to meet the local folk. Sleepless nights by firelight The stranger in this town Heard by talking long and singing songs When the English widow came into our lives, we had no idea where we'd end up here in London. She's in the tradition of eccentric English who abandon caution to try something quite out of character with an otherwise sedate and secure, comfortable lifestyle. She resigns as headmistress of St. Felix, a day and boarding co-educational school enjoying spacious grounds just outside the fishing port of Suttled in Suffolk. Its setting and coastal location could hardly be less like the great Indian desert which extends across the border with Pakistan. Yet that image of a foreign cyclist crossing it, so barren, beautiful and arid landscape resonates with Anne's idea of growing older. Her career at St. Felix will soon have lasted a decade as headmistress, unless she makes a move soon. Actually, that notion of life in middle age means more than comfort and complacency fits the St. Felix motto. Felix Kia Fortis, happiness through strength. Her school's mission statement states as one aim at St. Felix being to educate distinctive characters who are aware of their privileged position in receiving education and look to live their lives through action rather than just word. Going against the grain of conformity, the headmistress decides to see the world by bike. Her action plan is fulfill her contractual commitment, get fit, Farewell, friends, and buy a bike to get going. But the staff and pupils of St. Felix are a step ahead of her, presenting her a green mountain bike equipped with multi-gears and a real leather seat. To wish her well, they go to London and, near Tower Bridge, set her off on her first bike odyssey round the world. She cycles off down to the dock at Dover to cross the English Channel. That green bicycle is destined to carry her safely through South America and, where we become acquainted, to Christchurch. Anne parks it inside our home while seeing the sights of Aotearoa by bus and rail. She deserves a rest after her exhausting cycling in South America. 
noches claras del Caribe Hay un rumor que en horas se percibe Flota la brisa de un pasado intenso Flota un calor pesado, hermoso y denso One with no previous interest in bicycles, believing she's out of condition for her mid-fifties, the happy coincidence of holidaying in India, where she sees that cyclist, European like herself, pedalling across the great Indian desert in Rajasthan, is the flint that sparks the fire within. To adopt the modern safety bicycle, an English inventor James Starley patents in 1885 as her mode of life. Anne Musto writes about her trips, encouraging others to give it a go. Now she's home in England, fresh from mega miles across Australia, offering a rich experience to treasure for life. Her long flight home from Australia only two days ago doesn't deter from being bright as a beaver on Paddington Station to welcome us. Anne Musto is immediately good company. Her smile and still-ahead mistress' ability to organise propels luggage and us onto the busy early morning London scene and hailing a taxi. We bundle two bagged bikes, four panniers and ourselves into it to drive a short way to her apartment. Anne lives on the top level overlooking a busy square and pleasant park. Our disassembled bicycles each just squeezes into the small elevator to take us to the top. Anne's living room is well appointed, yet Anne makes plain the bicycles take precedence to adornments. This is where their assembly into the most efficient machines known to science, propelling humans by their energy alone, takes place. It's obvious our host, former headmistress Anne, is the dedicated cyclist. We lay out our ground sheet to protect her carpet as we put the parts together. Above where I park my reassembled bike, we see the certificate from Guinness Book of Records. 
It credits Anne Musto, age 54, with a cycle ride round the world from May 1987 to August 1988. Older now, she has shelves of memories preserved in well-thumbed editions or reprints. Gleaned from over a decade of her touring, Anne's chronicles of touring on two wheels are the most prolific of published accounts of any English cycling author. Her appeal to readers is her delight pondering the classical and historic links with the land she's cycling. Anne treats us to dine at a small Italian restaurant nearby. Conversation veers to cycling as she confesses to lacking mechanical aptitude. I had no mechanical skills, no idea even how to mend a puncture, she says. We spot her condor bicycle mounted like a trophy on the wall to save space. It's become a work of art. She points out her folded Brompton bike used for spins around London. She pours tea in her small kitchen. Something of a wine connoisseur is Anne. Belongs to a wine club and sampled some excellent New Zealand wines while she stayed with us in Christchurch. Here in London, she has a collaborator, a cyclist too, enlisting Anne's assistance in determining the top five hotels for listing in a popular guidebook, and to challenge the common perception of cyclists as somehow inferior. Anne tells it on behalf of her friend, Mignon. For a bit of fun, we decide to arrive by bicycle in an effort to quash the perception that people who cycle are typically from the lower class. My friend Mignon checks in first at the Ritz without a bicycle, as she intends to hire one later in London. But I arrive at the door on mine to say to the top-hatted doorman, I'm visiting a friend here. Will you take care of it, please? Certainly, madame. He wheels it away without batting an eyelid. Top marks to the Ritz for dealing with a novel situation so smoothly. When I pick it up later, I ask, How many people arrive at the Ritz on a bicycle? You are the first, madame. Two days later, Mignon sends her luggage ahead in a taxi to the Barclay, but she herself comes by bicycle. That doorman refuses to take it. We don't have bicycles here, he pronounces grandly, but Mignon's not finished. How strange. The Ritz never makes a fuss about bicycles. This comment is cause for the Barclay doorman to think again. After all, uh, there is a place for it. All's forgiven as other hotels among the top five hotels of London cooperate. On first name terms with the top hat doorman at one of them, the Dorchester, it's all good fun, and they enjoy having their photos with us. Harlico and I treasure our time in London. She's keen to visit Baker Street, the home of her favourite character, Sherlock Holmes. I'm keen to see where the ashes lie of Lord Rutherford of Nelson, a New Zealand-born nuclear physicist whose research revealed the atom is not a solid mass, as earlier thought, and how to change the form of particular elements, bombarding them with particles. He's interred in the Westminster Abbey, 
Harlequin hankers to see Ophelia, the most popular painting at Tate Gallery of a woman in love with Hamlet, Prince of Denmark. William Shakespeare's tragic drama considered his supreme achievement. The Tate Gallery, free for the public to visit, is the world's largest collection of British art, including what leaves a lasting impression on me, The Order of Release, a sentimental piece showing the release from prison of one of the Jacobite rebels, they who support the claims of exiled King James II and his grandson, known as Bonnie Prince Charles. Harlequin's not phased by the noise and bustle in London, akin to crowded cities of her homeland, as our time in London lapses and takes us to an Asian restaurant in Malibune. Smiling staff offer cuisine from across Asia, laid out in an Asian style of smorgasbord. We can choose our own fish for the chef to cook. I seize upon an option for fish already dead and filleted. Next morning, Anne deftly negotiates the London traffic on her Brompton bike. We follow her lead on our reassembled, loaded mountain bikes, which are performing well. It's always exciting to cycle in a new nation. I notice no glass fragments, such as we often encounter in New Zealand on the road. We're to take a train westward to Penzance, close to Land's End in Cornwall. We need a ticket from Paddington Rail Station, supplied by a turbaned official with an encouraging smile. We need it to master a bizarre system of rail ticketing in Britain, by which prices sink and soar like roller coasters, according to the time and the day. Pity we haven't come already holding an eight-day rail pass. There's a dedicated bike-carrying compartment. We make ourselves comfortable in a quiet carriage where using mobile phones is banned. It's a fast, smooth journey. Penzance is a gathering point for people setting out on or completing to walk or cycle the length of Britain. Some are staying where we do, at the local Youth Hostel Association hostel, including a group calling themselves Eight Blokes on Spokes, raising funds for their local air ambulance service. They plan to take 12 days reaching John O'Groats. We're waiting for the hostel to open. YHA's policy is to shut during the day, so encouraging members to use the time outside to experience more than staying indoors. We while away our wait, chatting with a group of Asian teenagers. We ask, where are you from? Hong Kong, say some. Taiwan, too. A young woman with a decidedly defiant grin looks me in the eye as she says, we're all 
from China. For our evening meal, we find Penzance offers excellent flaky cod wrapped up as fish and chips. The attractions of the seaside town are its delightful pups, mysterious narrow streets, imagining the smugglers, if not pirates, practicing their age-old trade by avoiding having to pay high government excise on imported luxury goods. Typically, tobacco, brandy, and exotic perfume. Honest industry along the coast we find in traces of a once lucrative tin mining. Cornwall and Devon extracting most of the tin on the world market. Next morning, we're ready for the ride. There it is, the famous sign, conveniently accompanied by its own description. Welcome to the world-famous signpost. Countless end-to-enders have started or finished their epic journeys to and from John O'Groats from this very spot. It's difficult to avoid commercial interests intruding on so significant a landmark. As a photography firm claims to own the property on which the sign stands and asserts a legal entitlement to the sign itself. Could this happen in New Zealand? There's no denying the pictorial impact of these surroundings on the southwest tip of mainland Britain. It's perched above granite cliffs, ready to plunge into the wild Atlantic Ocean. Our ambition, like thousands of cyclists who precede us, is to cycle a well-worn route to John of Groats. A village in Scotland that's farther north than any other place in Britain. From where we're admiring the view. It's over 5,000 kilometres to New York, but only 1,400 kilometres by way of cycling to mainland Britain's northernmost point.
from my pocket. I take a small piece of quartz, polished by the rough Tasman Sea, picked off an isolated west coast beach of New Zealand. In this corner of Cornwall, I throw it, spinning it skyways as hard as I can, willing it to plunge over the cliff's edge into the ocean swell, sluicing the foot of the cliffs. My shining white projectile clears close to foliage of branches clinging to cliffs, blocking the view of where it falls. It's not about good luck. It's back in Christchurch, a friend asks. I throw a stone, symbolic of her adoptive new nation, in the place farthest west of any in England. So here we are at Land's End of her homeland, at the start of our journey, and that of about 4,000 others, most on bicycles, who each year make the journey from end to end. It all begins in 1882, when two policemen of Leeds cover the 900 miles route in an incredibly short 14 days on a penny farthing. Now that's original. These days, it's only the ones who do it pushing supermarket trolleys, wheelbarrow, or on rollerblades who are attracting attention, usually for the sake of charity. courage to break out and do likewise. Are you end to ending? They'll ask along the length of Britain. Owning up, we merely nod to acknowledge the fact, lest we appear too smug. Enduring champion of the route is the 16-year-old medical student George Pilkington Mills, who in 1886 covered the distance on a bone-shaking penny farthing in five days, one hour, and 45 minutes. His grandson, Rolf Mills, wished to emulate George's original ride, but on an ordinary road bike, taking 17 days. Lest we imagine the route being easy to identify, it's not. We're planning a detour through Wales out of interest, so feel at liberty to do so without compromising the journey's status. It has no blatant claim for recognition, Rather British, dare we say. Incidentally, we're here by virtue of a chance meeting with Nick Mills. He's from Wanaka, a winemaker, 
who shares the family legend about his great-grandfather's epic ride from Land's End to John of Groats, five days, on a penny farthing. His record time in 1886 still stands, yet to be broken on a penny farthing. Armed with ordnance survey maps, we avoid the throng of tourists who gather at Land's End, watching as cyclists line up for photos under that famous sign, adding their own name in a separate slot to appear together with the place names on the sign. We pass through Penzance, a pleasant place portrayed in Gilbert and Sullivan's comic opera Pirates of Penzance as a resort of swashbuckling buccaneers. Happily, we see only holidaymakers, it being the height of summer. Harlico spots not so much a sign as a pluck with the words, in loving memory of Derek Hawkins, killed in an accident on his twelfth Land's End to John O'Groat's cycle ride. Died 25-10-2001. Harlico urges a pose for a picture beside the memorial. Trusting it's not an ill omen, I put on my best smile. Harlico studies the image on her digital screen, pronounces it to be a good image, and I think no more of it. Sea mist is shrouding the Isles of Scilly off the coast of Cornwall. Passengers from Penzance take a regular ferry or air service to reach its granite archipelago, sharing its mystery, hazards of rock and mist, steeped in legends of the kingdom of Leonis. Along the coast, they say, a sandy causeway once links those seventy-odd islands to the mainland. If legend be believed, there's only one who survives the calamity that befalls that unrepentant kingdom. Divine retribution for its abominable behavior of unspoken evil so sordid, no one knows what it is. That's all the legend tells of how the Isles of Scilly come to be lonely outposts of England, five of them inhabited, over 2,000 British citizens, as well as many tourists this time of year. At the same time next week, another of the editions of the adaptation of the book Petal Power by the late Roy Sinclair, broadcast on Free FM 89.0, proudly supported by New Zealand On Air. Episodes, use the accessmedia.nz app for iOS and Android devices or subscribe to this podcast via Spotify, iHeartRadio or Apple Podcasts. This free FM podcast was brought to you with support from New Zealand On Air.